Good morning. My name is Jeff Johnson, and the scripture reading today comes from the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, and I'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> get a preview of the screen, huh? Yeah, I've mentioned this guy before, but I'm mentioning him again. Story for you all this morning. If I can get it up. All right. <clears throat> In late 2016, millennial entrepreneur Billy McFarland teamed up with rapper Ja Rule to launch a luxury music festival. The Fire Festival was to take place at Norman's Cay an island in the Bahamas that was allegedly once owned by drug lord Pablo Escobar. In January of 2017, a two-minute promotional video is released on YouTube. The video highlights the island's crystal clear blue waters. A-list supermodels punctuate the video jumping off yachts, frolicking in the water, and riding jet skis. The island is touted as one formerly owned by Pablo Escobar, and the video promises the exclusive luxury experience of a lifetime. As part of the marketing campaign, the models in the video and other celebrities all post a single orange tile to their Instagram feeds promoting the festival. Within 24 hours, 95% of the tickets, with costs ranging from $1,500 each day all the way up to $2,500 each day, have already sold out. Guests were sold luxury experiences that would supposedly include private villas, private yachts, and backstage passes with musical artists. Despite all the hype, things were already starting to unravel. Norman's Cay, the island location of fire, did not have the infrastructure needed to support this massive number of people. It didn't have the plumbing, it didn't have the electricity, it didn't have the roads, it didn't have the housing. Secondly, the island was never owned by Pablo Escobar at all. By using Pablo Escobar's name, Billy McFarland and Ja Rule violated the terms of their contract with the owners of Norman's Cay and had to find a new venue. The festival location was moved to Roker's Point on the island of Great Exuma, just north of the Sandals Resort. Promotional material continued to tout the location as one owned by Pablo Escobar and pictures and maps were photoshopped to create the illusion of a private island. In April, only one month before the event's date, the guests hadn't received any itinerary information, and word started leaking that the musical artists had not been paid. Blink-182, one of the headlining bands, announced their withdrawal from the event. A reporter for New York Magazine describes arriving on location six weeks before the event was to take place. She says, After we landed, we drove to the festival site to assess our goods. When we arrived, my initial reaction was, Huh? 
This was not a model-filled private K that was owned by Pablo Escobar. This was a developmental lot covered in gravel with a few tractors scattered around. There was not enough space to build all the tents and green rooms they would need. Things had been in motion for a while, but nothing had been done. No vendors had been secured, no stages rented, and no transportation arranged. We were standing on an empty gravel pit, and no one had any idea how we were going to build a festival village from scratch. On April 27th, guests begin to arrive. The first three planes are diverted to a neighboring airport where guests are shuffled to a restaurant bar to wait. After waiting for six hours at the beachside restaurant, guests are bussed to the festival site to find the promised villas they had paid for are actually FEMA relief tents. Plastic-wrapped mattresses are strewn about and crates of alcohol lie baking in the sun. Billy McFarland steps onto a makeshift podium to answer questions and give instructions. Billy instructs everyone to, quote, grab a tent, and chaos ensues. Mom mentality sets in as everyone rushes for tents. People begin hoarding mattresses and scavenging supplies. That evening, fire guest Trevor DeHaas posts the now infamous picture of the cheese sandwich with caption, The dinner that Fire Festival promised us was catered by Stephen Starr is literally bread, cheese, and salad with dressing. In the early morning of April 28th, the Fire Festival is canceled and the process of sending everyone home begins. In July of 2017, Billy McFarland is arrested and sued for $100 million and a year later, McFarland is sentenced to six years in prison for fraud. That's the Fire Festival. It fascinates me. I've mentioned Billy McFarland before, but I mention him because this whole saga, Billy McFarland, the Fire Festival, is fascinating to me. It's a commentary on our culture. It's a commentary on social media and the power of marketing. It's a commentary on the fear of missing out. It's a commentary on millennials as they enter the business world and the workforce. It's a commentary on so many things. But what I find Extremely fascinating on this event is the difference between what was promised the guests and what actual reality was. The guests were promised a luxury experience of a lifetime. And in actuality, it was something closer to Lord of the Flies. People made memes referencing the Lord of the Flies about here's what's going on at the fire festival. Guests were promised this exclusive party on a private island with celebrities and models and anything you could possibly want, and the reality was FEMA relief tents. They were promised luxury villas, and the reality were these makeshift mattresses. They were promised cuisine that was state-of-the-art by famous cooks, and what they got instead was a cheese sandwich with a side of, of lettuce. There is an extreme difference between the promises of the fire festival and the actual experience of the fire festival. And I bring up the difference in the promises and the experience because I feel like this is often the way it is with us when it comes to God's Holy Spirit. We read the scriptures and God's word makes these incredible promises of his Holy Spirit, these mind-blowing, incomprehensible fundamentally shifting promises in his word. But our lived experience is a cheese sandwich. 
The Bible makes promises that are on the boundaries of the impossible. The video of Fire Festival touted this phrase, on the boundaries of the impossible. And we read these incredible promises that are on the boundaries of the impossible, and yet our lived experience is a cheese sandwich. Look at Romans 8, verse 11. We've looked at this one. It says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Could there be a more meaning-packed sentence in the entire Bible than Romans 8, verse 11? That the Spirit of God who brought Jesus back to life lives in us, and yet our lived experience is a cheese sandwich. Or in the same vein, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, which says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God, and yet our lived experience is a cheese sandwich? Why? Why the difference between these lofty promises of God, these incomprehensible, mind-blowing, fundamentally changing promises of God in His Word, and our lived experience as a cheese sandwich? Why do I live like a cheese sandwich, despite these promises of God and his word. Our lives are a cheese sandwich because we don't know him. We don't know his Holy Spirit. Paul, in our text today in Ephesians, is banging a drum, and he's hitting a message over and over and over again as he's writing the church to the church in Ephesus, and that message is a message of unity. Because now we have these Gentiles and Jews that are joining together to become the family of God. There's a whole narrative behind Paul banging the drum for unity. And that narrative begins with Adam and Eve because they're given this baton to be God's images, his reflections, his rain spreaders, tasked with the job of spreading his reign over the earth and showing the world and the creation and the globe who God is. And that baton gets passed off to the Israelites. And God chooses them to be his special family for himself who are tasked with the job of being his rain spreaders, his images, his priests, and spreading the, the reign of God over the globe and showing all the other nations who God is. That's their job. And then when Jesus shows up on the, on the scene, he radically reconfigures this plan of God to show the world who he is. And now anyone who believes in Jesus becomes part of that job, that rain-spreading family that is tasked with showing the world who God is. And so now with Jesus showing up on the, on the scene, the family of God encompasses Jews who believe in Jesus and also Gentiles who believe in Jesus or non-Jews who believe in Jesus. So you have all these people groups now that are coming together in Jesus and follow, choosing to follow Jesus. And now that reconstitutes the family of God tasked with the job of spreading God's reign, spreading the reign of Christ, showing the globe who Jesus is. And Paul is saying, you two need to come together as the new family of God and be unified as you receive that baton to bring the message of Jesus to the globe. That's the background to what Paul is saying here in our text in Ephesians. And he says this, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners because the family of God has been extended to you. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family coming together to spread Christ's reign. He continues, together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone of that house is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. And as soon as Paul starts using temple language, the Jews that are reading this goes, ah, I know exactly what he's talking about. Because the Jews have in mind 
a building that was at the center of their religious life. Because the temple was a building that was in the city of Jerusalem, which was their capital city, and it was the center of religious life for those Jews. And so they think of that building as the place where God lives. And now Paul is saying that the temple is no longer a building, but now believers in Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles, have become that home for God. Both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus become the new home for God or the building blocks of his temple. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying anyone who believes in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit makes that person into a temple, makes that person into a home where God lives. Both Jews and Gentiles come together to reconstitute the home for God. We are the building blocks of God's home. So the question I have for us, the Holy Spirit lives in us, makes his home inside of us. So the question for you all, and I want a show of hands, is do you know the people with whom you share a residence? Okay, Who do you share a residence with? Do you know those people? Raise your hand. Many of you, it's spouses. Many of you, it's children. Siblings, potentially. Some of you might sublet to somebody else or you know you have like an apartment off of your space and you rent that to somebody else do you know the people with whom you share a residence i'd hope so some of those people you know better than anyone else in the world because you share a residence trigger warning uh <laughs> for that picture <laughs> uh so I went to Moody Bible Institute for my undergrad, and uh, this is my roommate on the right. Uh, his name is Keith Rose, and there we are standing in front of our dorm room on Colby 7, and it's 702, Colby 7, and, you know, women weren't allowed in the dorm, so hence the no women sign. Um, uh, <clears throat> so I spent three years rooming with Keith Rose because I didn't know anyone that was going to Moody, so I just let the matchmakers at Moody make their match for the roommate, Right. And they put me with Keith. And uh, it worked. They did a good job. I mean, we got along. And so for us, it was kind of one of these things where we're like, well, this works. Let's just keep it going. Why roll the dice? You know, kind of the, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't sort of a thing. You know, like, hey, we get along. Let's keep it going. So I got to know Keith really well after rooming through her three years with him. Keith was a homeschooler, which is actually quite common at Moody Bible Institute. And so this was his first non-homeschool experience. Um, going away to college. Uh, Keith was quite intelligent. He was a music major, and uh, music came really naturally to him, so he was in a good place. He was a pianist, an accomplished pianist, and he also could sing really well. Um, and so when I'd have music questions, he would just, you know, rattle off the answer, and it just made no sense to me, um, which is why I got out of music. Um, <laughs> but uh, he, uh, I found out that Keith uh, worked for his brother, so his brother was actually one of the founders of an internet accountability software called Covenant Eyes, which is a Christian internet accountability software. His brother was one of the starters of that company. And so he would do tech support. So Saturday mornings, I would get gone because he would turn that into a call center. He would turn our dorm room into a call center. He would pull out his laptop, pull out his phone. And if I stuck around, which I tried not to do, all I would get was this droning of his voice, this one-sided conversation of him fixing somebody's, you know, tech problem or question with the software. So I would get gone, and, and he worked on that. Um, he was 
theologically apt, like theology was, I was first exposed to that at Moody, and so it was really hard because I'd never been challenged to think in that way before, but he had been thinking that way, so I remember we'd be studying for a test together, and, and he would just rattle off the answer or rattle this stuff off. I'm like, how do you even get there? Like, this doesn't, it's not even going in my brain, you know, so he was quite an intelligent guy, and yeah, we spent three years together, so I say all this to say, I knew Keith really well. I knew Keith better than most, if not every other guy on our floor in our dorm because I shared a residence with Keith. And here we read in God's Word that the Holy Spirit is sharing a residence with us. He's making us His home. And yet, so many of us don't know Him. Pay attention to Him. Why are our lives a cheese sandwich? Number one, because we don't know His Holy Spirit. And number two, because we don't desire his Holy Spirit. Why are our lives a cheese sandwich in spite of the incredible lofty promises of God in Scripture? Number one, because we don't know Him, and number two, because we don't desire Him. Let's look at our gathering Scripture that Daniel read. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. These are Jesus's parting, commissioning words to his followers as he's going up and back to be with his Father, as he's ascending back to heaven. He's reminding them of the mission that he's putting them on. And he's saying, your mission, you've received the baton. You've received this mission that has been given to my people throughout Scripture, to Adam and Eve, to the Israelites, to the Jews, and now you have that mission, and that mission is to be my witness. That mission is to make my name known. That mission is to spread my reign. That mission is to push the frontiers of my kingdom out into the globe. That is your mission. And he reminds them that they will be his witnesses throughout the world as he's going back to his father. This is the mission he puts them on. But I don't think that many of us want this mission. I don't think many of us want a mission given to us by Jesus. I think we want our own mission. I think we prefer a mission of ourselves over a mission that Jesus gives us. Jesus gives us a mission that's for him, by him, through us. But we prefer a mission that's for us, by us. Jesus gives a mission of extending his kingdom frontier over this globe, but we prefer a mission of safety and security. We prefer a mission of finding comfort. We prefer a mission of making sure that I'm okay, making sure that I'm in charge, making sure that I'm in control. We don't want the mission of Jesus. We want to determine our own mission. We want to be in control. Earlier in this series, we talked about that seventh day of creation, Not only being an example for our lives that we need Sabbath rest as humans, but the other lens to that seventh day of creation is that it is a transition day whereby God goes from setting up his creation to now taking his throne and reigning over that creation. He's done building his home. He is done building his cosmic temple of the universe. And now that he's done the work of building his universal cosmic temple, now he's sitting down on the throne of that temple, ready to call the shots and begin reigning as king. And in the same way, when the Holy Spirit comes into us as his temple, he doesn't just come in and say, this is a nice home. He comes in and he sits down at the executive chair and puts his hands on the controls and begins reigning over our lives. He sits down at the desk, the Oval Office, because he is going to begin calling the shots. 
and controlling and reigning. The problem is, is I don't think we want to give him the throne. I don't think we want to give the Holy Spirit the controls. We feel a lot safer when our hands are on the controls. And he's like, no, I'm, 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 I'm reigning over you. And we go, no, I got it, I got it, I'm fine. We don't desire his Holy Spirit. We don't want to be a temple. There's a book that a pastor by the name of Francis Chan wrote about the Holy Spirit called Forgotten God. And he tells this story about a friend and a really honest question he put to his friend and his friend answers it honestly. Here, listen to this story. Francis says, a few years ago, I asked one of my friends if he genuinely wanted to know God's will, no matter what God desired to do through him. His answer was honest. He said, no, that would freak me out. He then admitted that he would rather not know everything God wants him to do. That way, at the end of the day, he could say, I had no idea you wanted me to do all of those things. (laughs) When it comes down to it, many of us do not really want to be led by the Holy Spirit. Or more fundamentally, many of us don't want to be led by anyone other than ourselves. The whole idea of giving up control or the delusion of it is terrifying, isn't it? That's his quote. Jesus gives us his mission, but we want our own mission. The Holy Spirit wants to reign over us and make us his temple, but we really don't want him reigning. Why are our lives a cheese sandwich? We don't know him. We don't desire him, and we don't require him. Why are our lives a cheese sandwich? We don't know him, we don't desire his Holy Spirit, and we don't live lives that require his Holy Spirit. Back to our gathering scripture. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and guess what? Over the whole globe. That's where I'm going with this. Over the whole globe. You think we can do that mission on our own? You think we can accomplish this naturally? No way. You think we can strategize this mission into completion? Or plan this mission into completion? This is a mission that requires the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. But yet, how often do we rely on strategy or planning or our own smarts or a conference speaker or a leadership training? Because we prefer to live natural lives instead of supernatural lives. We live lives that don't require the Spirit because we do it all under our own power. We live lives that do not require the Holy Spirit because we put it all on us. Do you ever find yourself saying to God, Holy Spirit, you need to show up right now or I will be useless. You need to give me the words to say because otherwise I do not not know what to say. I will be a useless person meeting with my friend in this coffee shop right now unless you show up and give me the words to say. Because I don't have any training in this. Do you pray often that the Holy Spirit shows up inside of you because if he doesn't, you're done? If he doesn't show up, you're out a house, or if he doesn't show up, you're out an income, or if he doesn't show up, you're out a job? Are you ever in situations where you actually need God to come through or you're done? We live lives that do not require his Holy Spirit. You know, I'll just speak from the 
the side of like having him show up for a minute and how amazing that is. You know, I mean, like as a pastor, I get people that, you know, that say, hey, Bill, you, yeah, can we meet? You know, can we talk? And uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I enjoy that. I really do. And I'll sit down and I talk to them. And the thing is, is uh, very often what's happening in our conversation is way bigger than I could ever address or fix or help on my own. Half the time, whatever this person is describing, I have no training how to deal with that. <laughs> Whether it's an issue that's going on in their life or with a friend in their lives, or even if it's an issue between us where we're not getting along and we have to make some peace. And so it's in those moments where I say, God, you need to show up because I can't do this under my own power right now. Peace will not be made unless you show up. And he's never let me down. I'm not perfect. I, I don't pray that prayer as often as I should. And sometimes I say stupid things or I joke when I shouldn't joke. But when I ask for him, he never lets me down. He never lets me down. We live lives that don't require him. Question for you, you all. How does a man who is fully human walk willingly and deliberately into the torture of the cross? How does a man who is a human, 100% bona fide humanity, walk willingly and deliberately into death? And not just death, put you to sleep death, but death, excruciating pain on a cross. The answer is it is a Holy Spirit required event. The answer is Jesus requires the Holy Spirit to walk deliberately and intentionally into the torture and the violence and the death of the cross. Look at Ephesians 9, or sorry, Hebrews 9.14. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. How does an innocent man, when they come for him to arrest him, and his disciples lash out in defense, say, hey, cut that out, and then heal the ear of the guys that are coming to kill him. And say, yep, take me. It's part of God's plan. And then how does he stand and keep his lips shut when he's in front of Pilate, and they're wanting his defense, and he says not a word? How does he keep his mouth shut when he knows he's innocent, and the crowd is calling for Barabbas, who's killed a bunch of people? How does he put one foot in front of the other wearing a crown of thorns and his back busted open from whips as he trudges to the hill knowing that when he gets to the top of that hill he's going to be put on a cross and it's going to be excruciating, painful, disgusting death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit is required to put him there. He can't do that on his own. He requires the empowering of the Holy Spirit to continue his trudge to Golgotha. That's how he gets up there. Francis Chan again. The truth is that the Spirit of the living God is guaranteed to ask you to go somewhere or do something you wouldn't normally want or choose to do. The Spirit will lead you to the way of the cross as he led Jesus to the cross. And that is definitely not a safe or pretty or comfortable place to be. 
Why are our lives a cheese sandwich? Because we don't know his Holy Spirit, we don't desire his Holy Spirit, and we don't require his Holy Spirit. God, give us your Holy Spirit. Let's pray.